Pollen affects around one in six Australians. It can make your day-to-day life incredibly difficult, especially when pollen season's approaching. So how do you manage your life around your allergies? What do you do to help prevent allergic reactions? Hey, I'm Matt Dwyer. Welcome to Pollen, where Associate Professor Ed Newbegin, along with a range of experts, help you understand what pollen actually is, what may be causing your symptoms, how best to manage your conditions, and the environmental factors that drive pollen levels and other airborne pollutants. Welcome, Ed. You've been doing this for quite some time, so thank you for sharing your expertise with us. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and why you do what you do? Thanks, Matt. I'm an associate professor at the School of Biosciences at the University of Melbourne, and I've been doing the Melbourne Pollen Count now for over 20 years, but I'm really not Melbourne's first pollen counter, and hopefully not the last either. Pollen canning's been going on in Melbourne since the 1930s. And there was someone back in those days called Margaret Sherwood, who worked at one of the medical research institutes around Melbourne, who was doing pollen canning way back then. I got involved after one of Melbourne's other earlier pollen counters, a guy called Professor Bruce Knox. Uh, He left, left the School of Botany as it then was, and I took over from him because it was an important activity both for research and also for people in Melbourne. Melbourne, Melbourne's people love and they value and they demand the, the pollen count. And so I took it over back in 1998, so that was my first year. So I've been doing pollen counting now for over 20 years. And for my day job, I do other things as well. I do molecular biology, cell biology. I'm a general run-of-the-mill type of scientist and do a, a wide range of research activities. But the pollen count's really taken off as being one of the things, my major activities in life, uh, especially since the thunderstorm asthma event of 2016, which I think we'll return to at a later date. Yeah. So you started out doing it kind of on the side and then it just worked its way more and more yeah. into your life. Yes, that did. <laughs> it it uh, came to dominate uh, certainly a part of the year. So we do it from October through to the end of December. Uh, but even now it's taking up a lot of my life, a lot of my time over the rest of the year. And part of that is because people just want to have more information about pollen every day of the year. So we just do it for a short time of the year, but there's a lot of people out there who want to know the pollen count every day of the year uh, to try and track their own allergies and their responses to their those allergies. What's causing my allergies today? Yeah, well, well to help with that, we've got Dr. Jeremy Silver here. Jeremy, what's your background and what have you been working on lately? Uh, so um, my background is originally applied mathematics and statistics. I had a fairly circuitous route towards forecasting pollen. So I, I worked for a number of years in biomedical statistics and I, I got involved in air pollution modelling. So I, I went on to do a PhD in air pollution modelling. Uh, so when you say modelling, what do you mean by modelling? Computer modelling. So there are basically two different types of models that get used in, in this area and they're uh, physical models. So we know, we're using the laws of physics um, and what we know about the weather or statistical models. So they're looking for associations with other uh, environmental conditions, particularly related to the weather. So tell us a little bit about your pollen counting setup. Is it any different to 
other pollen counting setups? Is it specific to Victoria? No, it's uh, done in a very similar way around the world. So there's lots of places, particularly around Europe and North America, that do pollen monitoring. And we have very much the same sort of setup as those places do. And they use a very old piece of equipment. I'm in my 60s now, and uh, one of the things about science is that the equipment, the technology used to do scientific research changes all the time. So it's quite remarkable that for pollen monitoring, the same technology, I've used the same technology throughout my scientific career. If it Uh, ain't broken. If if it ain't broke, don't (laughs) fix it. Exactly, Matt. So it's a piece of equipment called a Burkhardt spore trap, uh, and it's basically a small vacuum cleaner, uh, which points into the wind. So it's got a fin on the back, it swings around in the wind and it points into the wind, uh, and that vacuum cleaner is sucking the air in through a small nozzle. And sitting behind that nozzle is a glass microscope slide. And that glass microscope slide's got a sticky substance on it. So the pollen gets sucked in and that glass microscope slide gets slowly inched past the inlet by a clockwork motor. It's That's right. So not too many things are powered by clockwork, clockwork. <laughs> any, any longer. <laughs> but this has got a clockwork motor behind it. and that, So we get over a 24-hour period. We do it daily. Over a 24-hour period, you get a trace of what was in the air deposited and caught on that glass microscope slide. So every day at 9 o'clock, we take the microscope slide out, uh, put a new one in, and a, a technician goes off and physically counts what's on that microscope slide to find out how much pollen and what types of pollen are on that glass microscope slide. That's a representation of a 24-hour period, and the number we provide is the average concentration of pollen of mm. particular types that were in the air in the past 24-hour periods. Now, that sounds simple. I just want to explain a little bit more about what that means because imagine in front of you you've got a, a box of air, which is a metre on all sides, so it's a cubic metre of air. And what we're saying is on average there was 20 pollen grains in that cubic metre of air. It might have been higher at some times, it might have been lower at other times, but on average, that box of air had 20 pollen grains in it. So that's that's what we're measuring. So it's not, dis- not the same as, say, a temperature where you're looking at the lowest temperature in the day and the highest temperature in the day. It's This is the average, average amount of grass. Across the day. Across the day. Mm. Mm. So what actually is pollen and what, what types are there? So pollen is part of the uh, life cycle of a large number of plants. These are the flowering plants, the plants that we most commonly see, as well as some of the conifers, the gymnosperms, uh, so the pine trees and the cypress trees and so on. So it's part of their life cycle. They produce pollen, which is equivalent to the nearest thing that we can compare it to in the human body would be sperm. So these are the male reproductive cells of some types of plants. And some plants, we're all familiar with the stories of birds and bees and so on. Uh, Some plants use birds, bees, animals to carry their pollen from one plant to a receptive female. Of the same species. Of the same species. So how it gets around, that pollen is carried on the head of a bird, a head of a bee, as they go from plant to plant. Wow. Uh, So those plants produce very small amounts of pollen uh, and it's adapted to getting caught in animal feathers and dander and fur and so on. But some plants produce, don't use animals to 
convey their pollen around. They just produce vast amounts of it uh, and they just throw it in the wind and it gets carried where it gets carried. And those are the plants which generally cause a lot of allergies, so there's a lot of pollen around. They're generally causing allergies because of the way in which our body reacts to them, and those are the ones which are problematic. They're also the plants, because they're not trying to attract birds, bees to the flower, they're also the flowers which we don't see. So when you think about a flower and you think about something which is lovely and colourful, those are all adaptations which are there to attract a pollinator. But the plants we're interested in, the ones which have wind pollination as their main means of uh, reproduction, mm-hmm. they don't have very showy flowers because they're not trying to attract birds and bees to their flowers. Because they use the wind. They're using the wind. And it's those plants which are the ones which are the problems. So for wind-pollinated plants in Australia, a lot of them, the trees are a lot of a problem, and they're mostly the European trees. They're the introduced species, so the elm trees, the plane trees. Everyone hates plane trees. We're always getting uh, comments on our chat lines and so on about plane tree pollen. Do you think the introduced species, like European trees, mm-hmm. are they as much as a problem in Europe as they are in Australia? They certainly are. So in, in Europe, Things like birch pollen are a problem. We have birches here. But in Europe, they have forests of birch. So they have whole forests of birch. They dominate the landscape. Here, we've got a birch tree here, a birch tree there, a birch tree sitting in your mum's front yard, Mm. that sort of thing. So there's there's not that many of those trees around compared to the way they are in Europe. In elms, the same sort of thing. We've got them in some places as a street tree, but not in other parts. So in Europe, and and olive trees in, in around the Mediterranean are a huge problem. So a lot of people have uh, uh, allergies to olive pollen because they're just around Spain and Italy and Greece and so on. There are large farms of olive. In Australia, none of these things are in such high, high amounts. Where, where They don't dominate the landscape. We don't see vast areas of them. But the one thing that we do have is, and the one thing Australia is famous for, is grass. Mm. We have, Australia famously used to ride on the sheep's back, uh, and those sheep were supported by vast acreages of grass. And it's the pollen from those grasses which are the ones which cause the majority of our allergies. So when is pollen season and does it ever vary or change? So lots of different pollen seasons. Each plant will have its own pollen season. So there'll be some uh, months of the year when one type of pollen is most abundant, there'll be some times of the year when another type of pollen is most abundant. But the one we're most familiar with is the springtime. So uh, coming out of winter, the first types of pollen we'll be seeing will be those coming from European trees. Mm-hmm. They generally start to flower before they get their leaves on. So when they're still naked, still branches, and the buds are not covered in leaves, that's when those plants are starting to release their pollen coming out of winter. Then you come into the springtime and the grasses have started to green up coming out of wintertime. They've been too cold for them to grow, but when they start to, the sun starts to warm the soil and there's sufficient moisture around, then the grasses will start growing and they'll flower sometime in late October and early November. And that's, they're flowering, that's their main season. So from around about the start of October to the end of December, is when we start monitoring. That covers pretty much covers the grass pollen season. Which is the worst. Which is the worst, by far the worst in in Victoria. 
And once you get too far into late December and early January, the countryside, as everyone would know, turn, in Victoria turns brown. Uh, it's too dry. Uh, the hot weather of summer has really set in and the grasses have all d- died off and there's not much left there to see. Hmm. So as grass pollen is the worst, when would you start forecasting and how do you forecast it? So the pollen counting season runs from October through to December for Victoria. This year we started forecasting, this is 2019, we started forecasting at the start of September. We're running our model through right through the end of the year. So we do each day a forecast. Um, we actually do two, two different types of forecasts. We do short forecasts and then kind of longer forecasts. The short forecasts go out for three days. So um, today's forecast, tomorrow's forecast. Um, the day after tomorrow's forecast. And then using coarser or, or less refined data, we do right uh, out to 10 days. Mm-hmm. So how do you actually forecast it? Okay, so we've got um, two different types of model. The, the primary one that we're using is a statistical model. Um, so it's mainly based on temperature, other weather data like humidity, rainfall, and then there's some information that comes from what the satellites can see of the ground surface. So as Ed was saying, um, in Victoria, we see over the course of spring and, and summer, the landscape gets progressively drier. Um, the grass kind of dies out, it goes brown. You can more or less see that from space. Uh, it's such a large scale process. And it's not just grasses that are affected by this process. A, a lot of plants are... Uh, are drying out to to some degree, and that changes the color. So, um, based on the the color change, we get some indication of how big a grass pollen season we we can expect it to be, and when we can expect it to peak. And that's going from uh, into summer when they start dying. That's when you measure it to forecast the next season. So, the satellite greenness is is being measured right throughout the year yep. um, and so we're, we're taking our cue from what happens over winter so uh, one or two months before the, the season really gets going and peaks um, to give us the indication about how, how big a season we can expect and also when it's going to peak. Mm, so if we think about what's going on in Europe uh, coming out of winter, winter there is pretty hard and then you start to get the leaves coming on the trees so the big thing and, and that's measurable from space. So you can see that greening of the landscape from space. In Europe, that's because of the trees getting their leaves on. It's the regreening of those deciduous trees. Uh, if you look across Western Victoria, uh, in the Australian flora, we don't see that deciduous trees. The trees keep their leaves all year round. So they retain their greenness all the way through. And the big thing that changes is the greening of the grasses. And so we can see that from space. And especially if you're looking across Western Victoria, there's not an awful lot of trees out that way. There's little patches of trees here and there. Uh, And every day, the entire earth gets photographed uh, down to very fine resolution. So we can see individual areas and measure how much greenness is in those areas. And there are places that we know or we associate with, okay, that that's where we think our grass pollen is coming from for Melbourne, and those are the things we need to look at to see how green it is. Obviously, if it's a, a very dry year, uh, there's not going to be very much green in that patch. Mm-hmm. The grasses are struggling. But if it's a very wet year, then there'll be a lot of green, and that's going to be, give us an indication about how much pollen 
can potentially be produced. And then it's just a question of getting that pollen from the places where it's a source into the city. So we need to have pollen production and then pollen transport through the air mm -hmm. and then pollen deposition on the susceptible people in, in Melbourne yeah. or other places in Victoria. So the forecast we do not only for Melbourne, but we do it for all of Victoria. So we've got a pollen forecast for all places in Victoria and for particular spots in Victoria, which is where we've got pollen monitoring sites. So there are eight places around Victoria where we do pollen monitoring. There just used to be the one mm. that I ran in, in Melbourne, and now uh, there are eight. Yeah, wow. And do you find it's pretty accurate? The forecast models? Jeremy can talk to that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, the, I mean, there are, there are biases. There are forecast busts, really. Uh, we're, we're learning as we go. Um, I think uh, it's fair to say that uh, the models explain about two-thirds of the variation that we're seeing on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but that's kind of an average. So some sites we've seen, uh, it does pretty poorly um, some seasons. Um, other sites, it does spectacularly well. Melbourne has the kind of longest record of data, so um, it it does it tends to do reasonably well in Melbourne. Yeah, and it depends what you want to talk about. How well does it do? So we can think about talking about say an earthquake. Chance of an earthquake today is zero, and chance of an earthquake tomorrow is zero. And so you can go off and forecast with great accuracy. Apparently, a lot of different uh, earthquake. And then you miss out on that one time where there is an earthquake. Mm. And so you say, oh, I just forecast 9,999 days without, and that must mean it's pretty accurate. But it's actually not a measure of accuracy because what you want to do is catch those bad days. Mm -hmm. So the one when the bad event happens. So we really want to see, can we forecast those days when there's high levels of grass pollen? Those are the ones we really that really matter to us, yes, not forecasting course. the low days. So forecast accuracy is not a single way of doing it. How, uh, how good were we? So there's lots of different ways of measuring forecast accuracy. And we're doing pretty well. We can obviously do better, but any forecast is always just that. It's not a promise of what's going to happen. It's a forecast. And our forecasts are also based on weather forecasts, and they've got their inaccuracies as well. I suppose the statistics of the people that are affected lodging any any reports of pollen suffering mm. or their allergies, would that help your statistics as well or does that not really play into forecasting? So that's that's kind of more experimental. We uh, that That's something that we have kind of dabbled in a bit um, and it's something that we use at sometimes as a check um, to see if the models are forecasting really low and then we see that across the community there are really strong hay fever levels being reported, then we realise, oh, okay, we've probably there's probably something going wrong here. And that actually happened uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, scarily enough. The problem was solved uh, pretty quickly, but it was actually through looking at community symptoms that we could really confirm that, um, that, that, that there was general underprediction. But we've seen, looking at the symptom reports that get submitted through the Melbourne Pollen Count app, that there is a, a pretty strong correlation between the average symptoms and the grass pollen levels. Yeah, that's been a very powerful way for us to look at uh, how much grass pollen there is. And that gives us, a, as Jeremy says, that's a way of, uh, still experimental, but that's a way of looking at how much grass pollen there is today in real time. So every day we do a measurement 
at nine o'clock, and that's looking backwards at the previous 24 hours. We don't know how much grass pollen is in the air now at this very minute, and the best way we have of estimating that is from what people are telling us about their symptoms cause, and they do that through the Melbourne Pollen Cat app, and they tell us how much grass, how much their, what their symptoms are, and at this time of year, that's a, a very clear indication of how of levels of grass pollen in the air. So about one in six people in Victoria, people in Melbourne, have got an allergy to grass pollen. So it's it's a very prevalent thing in the community. If you want to find out more information, visit melbournepollen.com.au. There you'll find more resources to help you stay on top of your allergies. And don't forget, if you haven't already, download the Melbourne Pollen app. You can find the nearest pollen site, track everything, create a profile and really help build preventative measures for allergic reactions to grass pollen. Pollen was presented and produced by me, Matt Dwyer, audio production by Darcy Thompson and the executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Special thanks to Associate Professor Ed Newbegin and the team at Melbourne Pollen Counting. Listener.